Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, PRR is looking for a bench graphics slash visual designer in Seattle, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., or Alexandria, Virginia. Insider Inc. is looking for a graphic designer in New York City. Gensler is looking for a CAD technician in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Dexcom is looking for a senior UX designer in San Diego, California. And OPS Group is looking for a dev and design superhero. This is a remote position. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on the jobs we just mentioned. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much again for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to talk briefly about our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit Facebook.Design. Now let's get into this week's interview. I'm talking with Fred Noland, a visual storyteller in Oakland, California. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Fred Nolan, and I am a visual storyteller. Now, before we get more into your visual storytelling work and your background and everything, I've been asking everyone, because we're recording this now during this pandemic, but how are you holding up? You know, I'm hanging in there. It it helps to know that I'm not the only one doing this. You know, when you know that, you know, misery loves company and we're all pretty miserable right now. Um, if if I was the the quarantined one, it would feel terrible. But yeah, I'm, I'm hanging in. I've got uh, I've got friends. You know, I've got my family. I've got like this tiny bubble I can go to. So I'm good. Okay. How has it been out there in California? I know that uh, I think as we're recording this now, cases have been spiking there. They have been. It's getting kind of scary. Um, I live in Oakland in Alameda County, and uh, the east side of Oakland has had a huge rise in COVID infa- mm-hmm. um, um, COVID spread. Um, my neighborhood has been pretty safe, I think, and people are being properly cautious. You don't see people out not wearing masks. You know, when you're walking down the street, people automatically, one or the other of you will hop into the street to give the other room. So I'm, I feel confident that the people in my space are doing what needs to be done to stay safe. But yeah, it's it's frightening. Like I, I was thinking that we would continue to see the curve trend down and it's upsetting that it's not yeah, it's and I know that people have been getting out and, you know, really just not following social distancing. We've seen news reports and such. Of course, there were spikes for Memorial Day. Now we're coming up on Independence Day. I don't know if there's going to be other spikes, but if we just see the behavior that happened, you know, back in May, then that's possible. It is yeah. it is scary, especially, you know, I think California is probably better than a lot of states in terms of the mandate for wearing face masks in public and such like here in Georgia, they they don't care. <laughs> they yeah. do not care. We had about three weeks of lockdown, and then they were like, may the odds be in your favor after <laughs> that. Luck, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Speaking- there's, there's been resistance in, uh, in the more rural areas of California. So you go out to Marin or you go out to like the Central Valley, especially. I guess it kind of follows the political map. So the more conservative the area, the more resistance there is to taking basic precautions. Yeah. 
Speaking of the pandemic, uh, the the way that I found out about you was I saw one of your comics uh, in the New Yorker, and I'll link to it uh, in the show notes uh, called "Pandemic Induced Malaise," oh, yeah, and, nice. and and it resonated with me because I saw it right at the time when I had been laid off from my job, and I was feeling all of these things. <laughs> yes that was one of those funny times when like i every once in a while you get lucky and you kind of catch the pulse of what's going on and that's that was one of those moments like where i could like kind of relate to the to the goings-on of everybody else how have your days been um my days aren't that changed honestly because i work from home anyway Mm-hmm. And I'm, I tend to be kind of a loner, so I don't like, you know, run, like I'm not a real social butterfly. Um, the way in which it has been difficult is I'm, I'm single without any possibility of not being single for <laughs> the known future, like who knows how long. Mm-hmm. So that's been tricky. How did you get started with doing comics with The New Yorker? Um, the art director, the comics director actually found me, Emma Allen. Um, and she's a big independent comics fan. Like she loves mini comics and self-published stuff. And at some point, some of my work came across, you know, her, her eyes and she reached out to me and said, Hey, if you ever have a, an idea that you think might work, you know, send it my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I could not believe my luck. Cause you know, I've been doing this for a long time and it is, it has gotten me, you know, dozens of fans. <laughs> like it was never, it was always something that I did because it's just what I do. I enjoy creating. I enjoy making those comics. You know, I would just do it at night and I had no idea that it would ever lead to something bigger like this. So you've done a few comics now with the New Yorker. It sounds like you pitch an idea to them and then they sort of decide if it's good exactly. to go. Okay. Yes. Yeah, you send them, basically, I just send them like a pretty rough sketch because they, you know, they know how comics work. You know, they don't need anything that's too detailed. And if kind of spell out more of what I'm going for, if the sketch is a little too abstract, and they'll know pretty quickly if they're interested or not. And if they're not interested, I usually end up just like kind of burning it off myself on my Instagram just as a sketchbook comic. And if they are interested, they will say, okay, this is good. Here's how we need to shape it up, you know, Mm -hmm. and they'll like kind of like tweak the copy a little bit or like tell you like this doesn't read quite right. But yeah, the yeah. process is pretty cut and dry. And, you know, the good thing about The New Yorker, it's like one of the only, probably now actually the only print periodical that's still really known for comics. It is, yeah. It got that reputation, geez, probably 20, 25 years ago when, uh-huh. um, when uh, what's his name, Art Spiegelman was associated with the magazine. Because, like, I know, of course, people know about comics through, like, Mad Magazine. And I remember seeing probably some other just like newspaper comics and stuff. You read that thing, but like, of course everyone knows the New Yorker comic. That's a a mainstay when people think about comics in this country. Definitely. Yeah. Spiegelman brought in people like, what's his name? David Mazzucchelli and like a lot of like uh, Chris Ware, like mm-hmm. kind of the heavy hitters in the, in the independent comic scene. Whereas, you know, the New Yorker before had just very New Yorker cartoonists in it, you know, that kind of dry irony. Yeah. And it kind of expanded the palette a little bit. So you still have that. You still have that New Yorker, the New Yorker style comic. And online, you have that more independent, more long form storytelling, which is what I do. Hmm. What are some of the other projects that you're working on? Right now, I am working on. So uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I started working with this company called People Power Media, which is a nonprofit in San Francisco that works around housing issues in the area. Um, and I collaborated with them on a series of animations that were done on the web. Uh, you know, they're on YouTube and they're out on DVD, etc. In several translations now, because it's issued that's applicable, you know, across the country and across the globe. You know, it's housing scarcity in populated areas. You know, where you want to live is just a huge problem that has just blown up increasingly over the years. So I worked with them on an animation doing the storyboards, uh, the asset creation, character design, like art directing, just several hats. I did everything except for the actual nuts and bolts animation. And they were just this amazing client. The, the 
honestly the best people I've ever worked for, just great to work for. And now they have another project that they're working on that's a book along the same lines. Mm. And I'm working on illustrations for that book. That's nice. the main project I'm working on right now. How do you go about finding new work? Is it just uh, a matter of pitching or is there another way? A lot of it comes down to the, uh, <laughs> I just realized what I was about to say. Uh, a lot of it comes down to the N word, but it's not the N word. It's networking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, shit, it could be, uh, Hey, I don't know. I'm asking, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's networking and I'm terrible at networking. Cause like I said, I'm kind of a loner. I tend to be kind of quiet. I'm pretty introverted. So I'm not this great person to go out pitching myself. I just am this person who puts work out into the world, you know? And fortunate with the illustration work that I've gotten, I have a good relationship with a few important people who have managed to put me in touch with some other people. Like, so one of them is uh, this guy, Andrew, who is the director of the the Cartoon Art Museum in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, when they're looking for artists in the animation or comic style, will start there and say, hey, do you know any artist who would be good for this? And my name has popped up in that circle a few times and it's, it's worked out well for me. I've also been a little more proactive in recent years where I'll just actually just cold call people or cold email people and say, Hey, I'm Fred. You have no idea who I am because why would you, but you know, this is what I do. Let me know if I can be of help every now and then you don't, I'm not a a hard selling person. Like I'm just not somebody who's going to like, really, I'm not terribly assertive in that way. I just like to throw my work up, you know, every now and then it'll come back to being an actual project. That's an ongoing thing. As I looked through your website, I saw this one comic that I thought was really interesting about major Taylor. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I am an avid cyclist. I'm not fast, you know, but I'm consistent. Like I just, I get out there and have my fun. And a few years ago, I was riding around the lake here in Oakland and I saw this club riding around well in front of me because they were faster than me with the logo Major Motion on it. And I'd seen it around before. And I was just a little curious, like, what is that club? You know, I hadn't heard of it. I'd heard of the, the Yellow Jackets, the Raptors, you know, who's Major Motion? And so I went online and looked it up and found this story of Major Taylor, which the club is named for. Mm -hmm. And Major Taylor was this amazing cyclist around the turn of the last century, late 1800s, early 1900s, who raced in Europe, raced in Australia, you know, raced in the U.S., but kind of had to leave because of abject racism, that funny thing. And yeah, as I just I was just curious because I'd never heard of him. Cycling used to be a lot more popular in the States than it is now. So he kind of got lost and his history kind of got lost. So the more I dug into him, the more I learned about him, the more fascinating he was. Because he's this guy, he never drank, he never smoked, he would not race on Sunday because he was raised like a devout Christian. He was a, a pacifist. I mean, just really very, didn't swear, just really admirable things. And it, mm-hmm. it was kind of confounding that, you know, nobody knew about him. He's getting more and more out there now, like fortunately, it seems. But yeah, when I learned about him, I, I thought that would be an interesting story to, to write about. Are there like any other historical figures like that that you've thought about doing comics on? There are other black cyclists because that's, you know, I'm not really into sports at all. I just enjoy cycling so I can actually stick with that as a subject as opposed to like football or boxing or what have you. And there's some other black cyclists that I'd love to write about more from that time than currently. But there's also, I'm forgetting his last name, but Nelly. He was an Olympic track cyclist. Mm -hmm. He's interesting. I'd love to do like, I'd love to do like just some shorter works about some different guys. But the main project I really want to be Major Taylor because he had such a long history and he's so, it's just so compelling because he was just so, I don't know, just so upright. Yeah. So, you know, and it was this time, you know, a lot of athletes now, like their reputation can be a little mixed. And maybe it's because of the patina of history that his isn't. But he just seems so wholesome and squeaky clean. Like he would be fun (laughs) to work with. And he, he had to confront so much racism on a level that we just can't even imagine now. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting now how, like, I've been seeing a lot more comic works that are featuring, like, black history figures of some sorts. Like, I know John Lewis had a graphic novel called oh, March yeah. that came out a couple of years ago. I've supported a few that are on Kickstarter that are talking about, like, I think there was one on Bessie Coleman that I supported that came okay. from, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the studio. It's like Sweet blueberry or something like that i probably am getting that completely wrong but it's from karen parsons who played hillary banks on fresh prince of bel-air oh she has a like a production company (laughs) yeah and this is a film project no it's an animation project animation okay yeah so it's interesting how we're starting to see that coming out because i mean of course with representation and and as big as representation is people want to see more biopics and things like that but animation is i'm assuming cheaper or at least you don't have to deal with trying to cast and do all that sort of stuff. You can get it done in a different process. Yeah, you don't have to have I, I think it does free you up from having to have like a name attached because you're using voices. Uh-huh. I'm not sure it's that much cheaper because it's, it's uh, <laughs> it depends on the quality of the animation that you're doing because it, yeah. it, it's very labor intensive to do that. Speaking of that representation, I know we touched on this a bit before we started recording. Representation, of course, is a huge deal when it comes to media, particularly as it relates to Black people, whether it's Oscar So White or even kind of this resurgence of companies and organizations suddenly waking up to the fact that Black lives matter and Black stories matter, etc. Representation is becoming very important. And I wonder, particularly for people that are creating like yourself, like cartoonists or animators, et cetera, is there like this burden to to represent blackness in your work in some sort of way? That's something that I have run into before. I've been working as a self-publishing cartoonist for years, and one of the projects that I worked on for a long time was about this character who grew up in the suburbs, and he's this aspiring creative and the main plot of the story is the main gist of the story is like, what is it like to be in that weird space between actual adulthood and your teen years? So you're 21, you know, so you can technically do adult things, but your brain's really not done yet. You know, you're mm-hmm. not a mature person. And the character that I cast in that role was a Latino character because it takes place in Southern California. And like, there's this real punk rock vibe to it. And I felt that if I cast myself in that role, it would become more a story about like, what's it like to be black in the suburbs in a punk rock environment. And I didn't really want to talk about that. I just wanted to talk about just the basic age and maturity thing. And I would get called out on that on occasion. Like, you know, why don't you write about more black stuff? And my response would be like, I do write about black stuff. It's autobiographical. Why don't you buy that stuff and let me write about this other (laughs) stuff that I feel like writing about? Yeah. But it's kind of come full circle because I have melded those two worlds more recently and more memoir stuff and more history stuff. So I do, I guess I've kind of come around on the representation thing a little bit. In the past, let's say, I don't know, like 10 or 15 years, have you started to see more comic and animation projects come out from Black people? I have. And I don't know if it's a thing where it's like I've just become more aware of it because, you know, the I feel like the not just the Internet, but the advent of social media has brought so many circles together. I'm sure you've had that experience where you're linked to somebody on a social media platform and you kind of feel like you know them, even though you've, you've never met them, you actually don't know them. I feel like that's had maybe some effect on my view that there's more out there, mm-hmm. like, you know, that that social media brings it more into your view. But yeah, I've also met more creatives, more black creatives, more creatives of color. And I feel like in the last few years, independent comics specifically has become kind of a venue that's more accepting of different points of view, like SPX, which is Small Press Expo and Bethesda, and uh, CALA, which is uh, Comic Arts Los Angeles, and CAKE, which is the convention up in Chicago. You see large Black, Latino, female, queer representation in those fields than you did in any previous years, Mm -hmm. which is really exciting to see because like when i started to do comics comics were just like this white dude thing 
you know, and you were like very much the exception if you were anything but a white dude. And there's such a plurality of experiences and viewpoints that's available out there that it's just, it's a whole different world than it was in the previous few years. It also feels like, you know, animation styles have changed, animation and comic styles have changed that become a lot more, what's the best way that I can describe it? I'll say approachable. They become a lot more approachable. Yeah. We were talking about that earlier, about how if you were coming up, you know, in the 80s or whatever, like there was this kind of, it wasn't exactly photorealistic, but it was this like this attempt to to render in a more realistic fashion. Yeah, it's, it's like, like you was really you, like, like you would see those commercials. You remember those commercials where it's like you send in. I don't know, like a sketch of like a turtle or something. Do you know, do you know the ones I'm talking about? Yeah, those art commercials? I, I do. Yeah. I hate it. I was so bad at that. So bad. I just didn't want to draw a turtle. I'm like, can you give me something more <laughs> exciting to draw? I'm a cat. Can I draw a cat with a hat on it? Yeah, I think a lot of that, both in comics and in animation, that kind of softer, more inviting style owes quite a bit to Japanese comics and anime because hmm. that has become popular in the States. I mean, the first time I came across that stuff was probably like a lot of kids was watching Robotech, you know, or Speed Racer because I'm old, like Speed, <laughs> Speed Racer. I remember Speed Racer. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it when it, when it was new, <laughs> when it was in first run. But yeah, so that was anime that just started to slowly leak into the mainstream here in the States in the late 70s, early 80s. And it's become this thing that really it kind of gained momentum because it is the manga style of storytelling is extremely efficient. It doesn't get hung up on the same level of detail and the same adherence to the strict anatomy, etc. that Western art has so there's a way that it's really inviting and it really makes a point of telling the story more with the pictures than with rigid picture and a lot of copy you know a lot of dialogue so Mm -hmm. it just flows a lot easier and i think that that is the influence those two influences anime and manga are what have come in and like started you know you saw it in the 90s with batman the animated series like yeah a kind of softer still heroic and still very exciting but that softer more inviting style of drawing i think that might have been the first that might have been the first cartoon series that i saw that really like as you're saying like it's very inviting like i feel like it really invited me into the story because of how simple the characters were but yet how right. detailed the plot was like i remember exactly. i remember robotech i grew up on like that stuff dragon ball I grew up also in a in a very like religious household, so we watched Superbook, which I don't know if a oh, lot of people geez. know about Superbook. Superbook is like this like eighties Japanese anime like Bible stories. It was like these two kids and they had this robot and they had this like computerized Bible. It was very <laughs> it was very, very odd. Yeah, that's canon, you know, and Jesus <laughs> said unto the robots, go forth. Yeah, and everybody was white. It was crazy. Yeah. But then like what? even the but even like the cartoons back then, like Transformers, GoBots and things like that, it was a very kind of not hyper realistic, but a very realistic sort of look. Unless yeah. it was very kid like, you know, like shirt tails or something like that, if it's skewed to that end. But then as the nineties came about, you saw like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Tiny Toons, but then Batman, the animated series came out and I was like, Oh, what is this? Like the style of the characters and the plot and everything. It was, it blew my mind. Like yeah. it was the first time that I saw that animation could be something different than like this kind of very perfect sort of presentation that I had seen before. Cause I was really interested in drawing and cartooning and all that stuff. And I was like, I can't draw like that. So let me just give it up. Yeah. It felt like it really closed that gap between like the super rigid and the super cartoony. Like it Mm -hmm. found that sweet spot right in the middle where it could feel exciting. It could feel masculine, if you will. It could feel heroic without being off-putting if that makes sense yeah there was like a certain gravity to it that didn't make it feel like a cartoon because it was already in kind of like this you know sort of like 40s ish noir style uh, which also was something else that i hadn't really seen prior to that and so you're like being introduced to this whole new 
time period with this this character that is like just a integral part of American comics in this very interesting sort of way. Like it was great. Cause I was into comic books and things like that too. And I remember the modern Batman from back then, which was sort of different from what you would see in the movies, which was definitely different from what you saw in the animated series. So uh, yeah. it's interesting how all of that kind of shaped and contributed to that. And even if you look at animation now, like it's so varied. I know people give cartoon network a lot of shit because I've heard of the whole Cal art style of animation okay. that happens at, at, uh, at Cartoon Network. And some of the stuff I've seen, I've been like, I could do that. I mean, I'm not great, but I was like, I could do that. But like the fact that the animation is so kind of loose and open in a way that allows for more exaggeration, like your imagination almost is able to fill in the gaps. Exactly. Yes. Cause yeah, you, you have to, that's one of the things that I find is lacking in. You'll see that with people who are just beginning their journey as artists is that they want to spell everything out. And it's like you have to let the reader do some of the work, give them buy in, you know, give them an entrance and like give them the structure. But the reader should do a lot of that filling in himself or herself. I'm curious. You said that you grew up in a religious household. Was there a particular dominate denomination or just, I guess you could say Baptist. I mean, we just, okay. it just made us go to church every Sunday. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'll say Baptist, but I mean, like my mother, pretty religious, my grandmother, super religious, my grandfather. So there wasn't a lot that we were allowed to watch. I kind of had to sneak and watch a lot of things. I remember, I vividly remember sneaking to watch the USA network at about, I don't know, maybe five thirty, six in the morning before school. And they would show one episode of sailor moon and one episode of <laughs> dragon ball. And like, that was like my fix for the morning were those two cartoons. Well, it's funny. My, my, oh, it's funny now because I'm past it, but my father was a church of Christ minister. Okay. So I grew up with some real fire and brimstone in my childhood. <laughs> Are you from Oakland originally? No, I'm originally from Ventura, California, which is about an hour north of LA. My parents are both Southerners. Like they, my father oh, okay. was from Alabama and my mother is from Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. And we spent a fair amount of, I spent like maybe 10 years in Texas before returning to California. How was it in Texas? Bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we were, it's funny because my mother was an English teacher. And so I've got a, a sister, older sister and brother. And my mother wouldn't really allow us to speak any old way, you know, mm -hmm. but she also didn't really teach us the importance of code switching. So, you know, when we moved to Houston, we actually lived in Third Ward, which is, you know, one of the worst parts of Houston. I don't know how it is now because it's been. 30, 40 years now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we were these weird California suburban kids with these California accents with our really strict grammar, you know, going to this like really rough Southern school. And it mm. didn't work out great for me. I think my sister did a little better. Like socially, she's a little more adept, but I just ended up getting my ass kicked a lot. Oh, <laughs> was, which is was, why I'm a cartoonist. I was about to ask you, like, was drawing like a big part of your childhood? It was a huge part of my childhood. And it actually, when we lived in Houston, it was one of the ways that I managed to get some kind of social cachet. Because like people realized that I could draw when I was like six or seven and they would commission me to like draw Fred Flintstone or something. Mm -hmm. And that did improve my social standing substantially, like that I had this talent that I could exploit. What was kind of your, your first real job once you graduated from college? I didn't actually graduate from college. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm proud of being a three-time junior college dropout. Okay. When you were kind of pursuing doing art growing up, did your, did your family support you in doing that? They really wanted me to – so my sister is a is a, an accountant, and she, you know, graduated cum laude from high school. Like, she's this – she was a really great student, really disciplined, and I was very much the opposite. Like, I was this really kind of, like, dreamy, like, ADHD kid who just, like, wanted – I just had this very rich fantasy life, and it would very much get in the way of my schoolwork. And they really wanted me to figure out something. They were worried – for me having, you know, an actual career. I don't think they were worried about me 
ending up in prison or anything because I was just never so inclined. But yeah, they wanted me to figure out something that I could do that I could actually make a living from. And all I wanted to do was make art. That was all I was ever interested in. And at some point when I went to school, I was like, okay, I'll study marketing because marketing is a, it's got market in the name, you know, it's got to be a market. <laughs> and then when I was studying it, I realized, you know, there's a lot of graphs and math involved. It's <laughs> 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 like, that's, that's not going to fly. You know, I, I can do enough math to balance my checkbook, but I'm just not interested past there. I can line out the squares on a page for drawing comics, you know, yeah. probably, but past there, I just couldn't. So I just started going to school, just studying skills. So studying art, studying like the different Adobe programs that mm-hmm. I could like go out and apply. And yeah, to, sorry, long story short, my first job when I got out of school, like when I was like, I'm, I'm done studying this, you know, I'm going to go out into the world is I went and started working as a, uh, an imaging technician for a newspaper. So just scanning and correcting images. Mm. When did you sort of know, I mean, and this could have been, you know, prior to this job that you're talking about now, but like, when did you know that this was what you wanted to do for a living? Like you want to be an artist? It was never a question. Like it was as long as I can remember, that's all I wanted to do. Mm. Like going back to, I, I guess when I was six or seven, I was like, this is what I need to do. And it kept getting pushed down and it kept getting redirected and it kept being like, you know, you can do that on the side. And, you know, I did figure out a way to make a living as a creative before I could just do make a living as a, as an actual like drawing board artist. So, you know, I worked as a graphic designer and production artist for years and that kind of scratched that itch, you know, as a way of making a compromise between this creative side and this really commercial, you know, need to earn a living. Mm-hmm. Did you ever sort of see any other like artists or animators that you kind of emulated back then? Oh, certainly. Yeah. The guys that I emulated early on were all kind of the, the fanographic stable of alternative cartoonists in the 90s. So the Hernandez brothers, Dan Klaus, the guy who did Ghost World, Peter Bagg, Bob Fingerman. A lot of the work that that I did, you know, up until the last 10 years, you can really see those influences pretty clearly at times. What is it about that particular style that speaks to you? It's very expressionistic. The only art movement that I have any real connection to that I really enjoy are the Dadaists and the Expressionists. And there's something in the freneticism of that work that just speaks to me. And I think it's, I, looking back on it now, and I've never really thought about it, I think it's like this ADHD thing where you have like all these other things going on and pulling into this one central theme. So like, you know, the way George grows would paint, you know, you would just see all of these other things flying off in planes off to the side to get this one concept across. And it's almost like a painting, a cartoon painting, what he would do. And if you look at those 90s, some of those 90s cartoons, particularly Peter Begg, there was like a real expressionist element to it, where it was like the characters were just screaming off the page, you know, instead of just like being static and they're not flying, you know, these aren't superheroes. These aren't science fiction guys. These are just like really manic generation X slackers who have no emotional sobriety. And I I think that spoke to me. When did you make the move back out to California? Uh, We moved back out in 1988. Yeah, I was 15. All right. So you've been kind of there in Oakland the whole time then. Uh, we moved back to Ventura, the, the town that I was born in, uh-huh. and okay. I stayed there till I was 27. And I visited the Bay Area with the person who was going to be my ex-wife, <laughs> if that makes sense. My future ex-wife. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we've, we visited up here on vacation, and I'd never been. And I was like, we didn't even live together at the time. And I was like, I really like it here. At some point, we should live together and then move up here. And like, that's, that's what we did. Yeah. We moved up here in 1999. Okay. How have you seen Oakland change since you've been there? Cause that's what, 20 plus years now. Yeah. It's changed a lot. It's funny. Cause I, you know, there's almost nobody here who's a native. 
the natives have all moved to like LA and Seattle and Portland because they all got priced out or they all just got fed up with seeing what was the San Francisco or the Oakland that they grew up with changing. And I yeah, I had, had friends who would tell me how it was living here since childhood. And just in the time I've been here, I've seen probably two or three really distinct changes take place in Oakland, you know, in my town. When I moved up here, it it felt like we were kind of first wave gentrifiers because I moved up here during the first dot-com boom. Uh And I I wasn't after that dot-com money, which is why I didn't end up washing out. You know, I didn't even know about it. I was completely ignorant about it. I moved up here because I just liked it. I liked the vibe. I liked the people. I liked just the way it was visually. I liked that it wasn't so auto-centric like Southern California is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just, you know, was just this dumb young kid who was just like, I'm just going to do this. And it's, it's good to be naive sometimes. But, yeah, so we moved up for that. And then... The first recession hit, you know, the post 9-11 recession hit. Yeah, post 9-11, like there was the recession that came with that. And you saw kind of the rents and the kind of the gentrification wave kind of rolled back a little bit. And then it resumed, you know, with the tech boom, you know, with Google and all that stuff. And that had just a huge impact. You just started to see a tremendous displacement of people out of Oakland. Like uh, Oakland became substantially less black almost overnight, you know, Mm. and you would have people would have to move out to the suburbs because they just got priced out of like, even like the quote unquote bad neighborhoods in Oakland, Fruitvale and West Oakland and like the lowlands, like those started to get priced out. And then you'd have people come in, you know, moving in from who knows where, who would complain about how loud the church was down the street. And it's like, that church has been here for like 50 years, 100 years, who knows? Like, this is part of the fabric of this community, you know? You don't get to come in here and like, tell them that they're being too loud. Like, you don't get to come in here and like, complain about how things are, because this is, this is Oakland. Like, get used to it or get out. (laughs) (laughs) So, how is the art scene there now now that the sort of the demographics have changed as you've stated it's funny because part of the reason i wanted to live here is because you know some of the artists that i loved lived up here like richard sala and adrian tamanay and dan Klaus, and there was this kind of really active comic scene that i I managed to find my way into after a couple of years up here and then slowly those same people started to kind of ebb away like some of them got pulled away cartoon network pulled away half of the cartoonists in the bay area because they're like hey come down here be a storyboard artist be a character designer and you could go down to la and actually buy a house with you know Mm. using that skill that you have unfortunately i (laughs) for some reason they my name didn't get thrown into that hat but you know that's neither here nor there and yeah, other people I knew moved up to Portland, moved up to Seattle, like they got into tech. So a lot of like my peers kind of drifted away. But I do still have like this kind of core group of people that I'm still friends with who've remained that I've known for 15 or 20 years, fortunately. Yeah. Nice, nice. Now you also have a podcast. I listened to a few episodes so I could get a sense of who you were for uh for our interview, but can you tell me a little bit about the show and how it came about? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's called serious moonlighting and you know, it's kind of a, a play on words for that David Bowie lyric from let's dance. And it's about people who have their discipline, like their creative discipline that they've maintained basically in spite of having to not have that be their means of support. So it's like, you know, these people have a day job, sometimes they have two day jobs, and they continue to work in whatever their creative field is, not as a hobby, but they're actual, like, very serious, very committed to that work. And it kind of explores, like, how do you do that? Like, how do you keep it's and it's not like, you know, how do you crack into the industry? It's how do you keep doing this thing that's very much central to who you are as a person Yeah. while you have to make a living? Mm. How has the show been so far? It's been interesting because everybody comes at it from a, a different point of view. I need, I'm trying to figure out how to get more. I end up interviewing a lot of cartoonists because of the people that I know. And I want to get people from other disciplines. Like I want to get some painters. I want to get some more photographers. I want to get 
more representation because I, yeah, have interviewed just a lot of guys and I need to get more of a representation. But it's been interesting to see how people come at it and how they how they work it into their life and how they manage to for some people it can be kind of a destructive thing like um continuing doing what i've done has probably cost me relationships you know it's like it can like really affect your health it can affect you financially but i've also known people who you know are parents you know and like continue to like do their day job and raise their family and not have it be this thing that encroaches upon the rest of their life so yeah it's been interesting to see how people manage that so given, you know, sort of what's going on now in the world and everything, what is it that keeps you motivated these days to continue doing work? Um, well, I've managed to have, strangely enough, like a fair amount of success, like in recent years. And that, you know, nothing encourages like success. I've managed to move more towards doing just visual art and have managed to kind of push doing design and production more to the background. And it's nice to have that to fall back on, but I'm very happy that I basically just get to draw for a living for however long. It's funny, the other day I was, I have my son part-time, you know, and I was taking him back home, you know, to his mother's house in the morning and he was kind of lollygagging and I was like, you know, we really got to get going. I have to get to work. And he's Mm -hmm. like, ah, dad, you're always talking about work. And I was like, listen, (laughs) I get to draw for a living. You do not understand this, but this is kind of a big deal that I get to go to work doing this right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess like, yeah, it's definitely been encouraging to be able to actually do this for a living. I'm excited for projects that I have. You know, I have more ideas than I have time, honestly. And I just want to do what I can to like bring as much of it into the world as I can in however much time I have, you know, who Mm -hmm. knows how long we have. What's the best advice that you've been given about what you do? The best advice I've been given, huh? I don't know. I'm trying to think if I've gotten a lot of advice because I've kind of bumped around and and found my way through this. That's a good question. Have you had Um, any like mentors or anything that helped you out? Not as such. Before I moved up here and before I started, you know, working as a creative, I would send my work out to a few different artists. And I was very encouraged to have them actually write back on occasion and say, this is good. Keep going. But, you know, I didn't ever have anyone who like took me under their wing, but Mm -hmm. having that validation from people that you genuinely admire, who, you know, like they don't have to write back to you. If they didn't like your work, they just wouldn't bother to respond. And if they really didn't like your work, they would respond and be like, don't give up your day job. So that, yeah, that's been encouraging. And having, you know, I've got my peer group and they are really accomplished artists. And I don't think that they would hang out with me if I sucked. (laughs) So (laughs) I think that in and of itself that they're like, yeah, you know, you can, you can hang out with us, Fred. That's, that's encouraging. Like that means that I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I fit in. I would say maybe some of the advice that I've gotten is stop doing mini comics. Like you're, you're, you're too good to keep doing this, you know, try to do something that's beyond that. And I've kind of stuck out the mini comic thing a long time because I'm, there's this weird punk rock aesthetic that I have where I like have this weird fear of success, fear of selling out, if you will. Hmm. And that's really silly at this age. There's one thing, there's no concept of selling out in the, in the current, you know, culture. Like, that's just not a thing. And I've been reluctant to kind of give that up, but I'm giving it up because I just can't. I I need for the work that I produce to actually at least pay for itself rather than be a loss leader for me. Okay. Do you have like a dream project that you'd love to do? Like if you had the time and the money, what would like be your dream project? Well, the dream project, I have a few dream projects, but... The main one I'm actually working very hard on realizing right now, and that's to do a major Taylor graphic novel, to do Mm -hmm. an actual full biography of him and 250 to 300 pages for the young adult market. And that's something that I've been shopping around and shaping up in the last few years. So that's something that I genuinely hope to realize within the next few months to to year to Mm -hmm. actually like, you know, get that ball rolling. 
yeah, and there's some other projects that I'd love to do after that. Like I'd love to, one thing that like my sister and I have always talked about is doing a biography of our family. Cause we had this like really weird, just oddball, religious, intellectual, poor traveling, like, like the Jodes family. <laughs> um, it's funny because I know like while our experience is, is unique, it's not solitary. Like I know other people have had something similar. And I feel like it like there would be an audience for that for people who like had to kind of walk this line between like the super religious, really disciplined upbringing and what the world expects of you. Are you satisfied creatively? Do you feel that? I'm very satisfied creatively. I could not have said that to you a couple of years ago, but it's weird to say that. I feel like, you know, am I delusional? I don't think so. Like, I think I'm actually, I think, you know, yeah, being in the New Yorker, getting to like work with like really great clients, like People Power Media and stuff. It's really, it's very validating and it's, and the work itself is genuinely deeply satisfying. So yeah, it's my hope that I can just keep doing it and keep building on that. So there's a common theme that I'm asking every guest that comes on the show this year. I mean, it's around sort of black futures and black futurism, et cetera. But how are you using your skills to help build a more equitable future? Well, I hope in some way that I'm perhaps leading by example. I think it's helpful if you can see someone who looks like you doing something that you'd like to do. Like, it's helpful to have to realize that's a possibility for you. Because I feel like when I was growing up, you you didn't really have a lot of black cartoonists. You didn't hear about black animators. You didn't hear about black commercial illustrators. You didn't hear about black editorial illustrators. You didn't hear about black designers. You know, I was listening to your show, like learn, like, you know, that's, we all kind of end up working in isolation, not realizing that there's others of us out there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure like just to a great extent, like you're satisfying that need as well. Like showing other black people like, yeah, you can be a creative. There's nothing culturally. I feel like that's not a real thing for us, but I'm here to say that it is, you know, like yeah. this is this is my lived experience. So I hope that I can inspire other people to be like, yeah, I can do that or more, you know, like I don't want to be like, yeah, you, you can you too can be like me and, and live in a studio apartment closing in on 50 years old and, and make, you know, drawings for a living. I feel like there's there's so much more that we can do. And I feel like I feel like we're approaching I feel like the wave is building to where we're going to be able to put more people up in that spot to inspire others to keep building on that, to bring more diversity into the field, into the the creative fields. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Touring my third successful book. Nice. Yeah. I, I see myself doing like, kind of doing what I do now, just more of it. So continuing, I, you know, I, because my attention spans rather uneven, it's really important that I have a variety of projects and that's what I've managed to do recently. And that's what's working for me. So yeah, I'm hoping to keep doing that, you know, keep having this illustration project and this comics project and perhaps this animation project, like keep those plates spinning and yeah, just, just building on that. But uh, I will definitely be just doing what what I'm doing now, just more of it. I'm, I have no intention of returning to an office. I, in an emergency, will go back and do design work, but my heart's just not in it. You know, I just, yeah. just want to draw, you know? Yeah. Is that a realization that you've come to, I guess, the older that you've gotten and the more that you've done this, or have you just always felt like that? I had a realization within the last year, like I was just like, like hanging out thinking, you know, not being able to, it's probably four o'clock in the morning or something. And I'm just thinking, and I'm thinking about like, uh, how difficult it's been to continue doing this and kind of ask myself, why, why am I doing this? Like, why do I keep doing this? And this will sound silly, but I came to the realization in that morning, morning, that moment that I do this because I'm an artist. Like this is, what I do. Like, that's essential to who I am. Like, I thought of art as a thing that you did, but being an artist is a thing that you are. It colors everything. You know, you don't have a choice but to continue doing this. You're not a whole person unless you keep doing this. 
that like lightning bolt struck me within the last year. It's bizarre to think about because you would think that it would have occurred to me before, but you know, I'm a little slow on the pickup sometimes. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Oh, well, there is my website, which is badly out of date, but it's www.frednoland.com. And that's Nolan, N-O-L-A-N-D. You can find me in two places on Instagram, Fred Noland on Instagram, which is mostly my comics and sketchbook stuff and editorial stuff. And then I spun off a different one that's more corporate animation and infographic works. And that's Fred Nolan Graphics. You can find me on LinkedIn. I don't really engage with that all that much. I should probably do it more. But yeah, I've really pulled back from social media in recent years. And I feel that Instagram works for me, like as an interface. Um, mm-hmm. Facebook and Twitter were just garbage fires. <laughs> they were so soul sucking. Like I realized at some point, you know, when I was logging on and just like feeling my face get hot, hey, you're not getting any joy from this. Why are you still doing this? So I dropped them. But yeah, Instagram's a great place to, to interact with me. Nice. Well, Fred Noland, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for, I mean, one, for sharing your story, because like I said, I found out about you through the New Yorker and was like, wait a minute, who is this? And then looked into it and looked into the work. And I really liked the work when you mentioned the Fantagraphics from the 90s. I immediately got the <laughs> reference. Like I, I I was like, I knew this looks real. This looks like me when I was in college going to like the comic book store, criminal records and like reading through stuff and being like this whole different world. But I'm really just glad that you're able to kind of share your perspective on the work that you do. And I hope that more people find out about it and that you get going to that third book in five years. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm really enjoying getting through your archives. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through, but I will do it. (laughs) (laughs) Let me know if there's some I should skip. That way we can get through more. But Well, if you want to hear, well, I mean, there's more. I mean, if you're looking for more like animators and. A lot of what I really get out of listening to podcasts and I listen to a lot of them is just hearing other points of view. So I love Uh. like hearing people who are just I was listening to um, the guy who works for NPR the other day. I'm forgetting he's within the last five episodes. And that's so outside of what I do. But it's fascinating because it's Mm -hmm. outside of what I do. So, yeah, it, it doesn't need to be animation. I'm just like really enjoying dipping in and out of, of the different disciplines. Okay, I'll give you some suggestions of some episodes to check out. Okay, awesome. All right. Big, big thanks to Fred Noland, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Fred and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs and unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by R.J. Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. We'll be right back.